Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to continue on with the origins of totalitarianism now with part three. Well, this is part five that I'm doing, but part three of the book titled Totalitarianism. So this episode is going to cover the first half of that. Then the next episode is going to cover the second half of that. So uh, before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo, and you can find links for that in the description. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can leave five stars, leave a nice review or a bad one, you know, whatever you feel like I deserve. And uh, that would help me out a lot. You can help me out via, via every time. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it on YouTube or I sometimes release videos or vice versa if you prefer to just be able to download it and listen to it wherever you'd like. So this part, part three, totalitarianism, starts with the preface, like the previous uh, parts of the book here. Now, this in, at the beginning of this preface, Arendt stresses the fact that everything that was going on in Nazi Germany, even all the way down to the concentration camps, was well known among the public. People knew exactly what was happening, from the colonialism to the um, persecution of Jewish people, of gay people, of immigrants, of Roma people. None of this was really happening in secret. Now, with that being said, totalitarianism does depend quite a bit upon secrecy, but these outward forms of violence were acknowledged by the general public, and there was tacit and overt support for these actions. Now, of course, totalitarianism is not reserved for Nazi Germany. She says that we have to also look at Russian totalitarianism with the Bolsheviks and Stalin. But she says that, and I think that she's right about this, is that in Stalinist Russia, so many documents were destroyed and there's so much secrecy that it's difficult to do the kind of historical excavation that she does here with Nazi Germany. So she only makes kind of passing references to Stalinist Russia. And she says that it's not because she doesn't care about that, but just because she doesn't have as much information. So much of what we discuss is going to be applicable to Russian totalitarianism, even though there are, there are big differences, of course. But some of the primary tenets will remain regarding both Russia's form of totalitarianism and Nazi Germany's form of totalitarianism. Now, as well, she leaves room to discuss uh, China as being a totalitarian regime under uh, uh, Mao Zedong. And she says that there, the difference here is that Mao is a lot more peaceful than uh, Stalin or Hitler, which, you know, I don't know if this claim stands the test of time. But in any case, Arendt's point is that unlike Stalin and Hitler, Mao was not a killer by instinct, and instead he permitted the country to develop peacefully, to uphold academic and professional standards. Now, whether or not that that is necessarily true is certainly up for debate, and she doesn't spend any time in the book actually discussing this, so who knows if she actually like uh, felt like really compelled by these beliefs. But in any case, one of the points that she made here is important in grasping what totalitarian and totalitarianism is in relation to or, or in contrast with something like a dictatorship or tyranny, where under Mao Zedong, obviously this is a, a dictatorship, but the difference and one of the hallmark 
uh, elements of totalitarianism is that it assaults uh, the fundamental fabric of reality. It tries to bend and shape reality to fit a certain narrative, which means that it has to go after institutions that try to uphold the rule of law, try to uphold reality through science and reason and logic. It goes after all of those institutions claiming that they are wrong and that totalitarianism and the ideas that are motivated through it are in fact correct. And also in relation to China, uh, Chinese totalitarianism or, or Chinese, uh, Chinese dictatorship is that there wasn't the same logic of expansion that was uh, kind of found here. Now, whether or not that that's totally true, I mean, I think of Tibet, for example, or Taiwan, so many examples. There, uh, she is very clear that one of the elements of totalitarianism is also that it will always try to expand itself. It wants to become a global phenomenon. So dictatorships and tyrannies are not necessarily in themselves going to be prone to expansion. They might just only be interested in keeping their own plot of land, their own nation, uh, kind of for themselves. And they might be isolationists. They might cut themselves off from everybody else. But in any case, totalitarianism is always going to be interested in expanding for expansion's sake. Now, to consider the role of anti-Semitism in all of this, obviously that was pretty clear in Nazi Germany, and we're going to talk about it more in these episodes, these following two episodes. But in terms of Russia, there was a little bit of a different understanding about anti-Semitism or an approach to it, where in Russia there was hostility to Zionist uh, Judaism or Jewish people who believed in forming um, a Jewish state. They were opposed to that, which might maybe on first glance appear to be non anti-Semitic, but the thing was that they associated all Jews with that belief. So therefore, they were able to say, uh, we are opposed not to Jewish people, we are opposed to Zionist Jewish people, but all Jewish people are Zionist Jewish people, so therefore, therefore, we oppose all Jewish people, which is just a strange way to arrive at the same conclusion. Even, you know, all parts of it are problematic, obviously, but it's just um, slightly different then the way that Nazi Germany took it up. Now, of course, like Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia uh, completely uh, attacked everything that everybody knew about facts and reality to produce a situation that was highly corrupt and highly untrustworthy, where people didn't even know who they could trust, who they could believe. Did they believe government officials? Do they believe academics? Do they believe journalists? Nothing was uh, clearly laid out. There was no a common ground for people to share in terms of information and knowledge. And so they were left on their own, producing a situation of paranoia and suspicion. Now, the last kind of uh, similar thing between Russia and Germany that she wants to emphasize here in the preface is that they both emphasized policing more so than their militaries. And which might seem strange because obviously Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia had militaries. But the role of the police commanded a much larger population. And when the military did its job and would go into a place and take over land, take over territory, then the police would go in and their job would begin. And it would be to manage in that kind of administrative bureaucratic way to manage these populations and to keep them passive and under control and always in fear. And these people were dressed to be 
uh, to produce fear in the hearts of the people that they policed. Now, she concludes this uh, preface by saying that one of the signs that totalitarianism is fading or that uh, it is being properly combated is when there is growing emphasis on freedom of speech, on liberty, on equality, and when there's emphasis on arts and culture and philosophy and everything like that, that are anathema to totalitarianism that tries to take the life out of things, that tries to take the beauty out of things, tries to upset what humans can find beautiful in one another, and instead tries to create a ground of hatred, tries to create a ground of suspicion upon which everyone lives. And that puts us here into the actual part, part three, totalitarianism. And with chapter 10 titled, A Classless Society. Now she begins by identifying how quickly the masses forgot about megalomaniac leaders and how quick they are to replace those leaders. Because it would seem as though that if there was a dictator, people would remember how bad life was under the dictator and wouldn't repeat that cycle. Now totalitarianism is particularly effective at making people, entire populations, think that they need totalitarianism because totalitarianism is open in its promises. And what I mean by open is not that it's transparent, but that it never fully um, elaborates its goals. Instead, it remains vague, always leaving the room or always leaving room for mobility and movement, which is a very seductive narrative to hear if you're a person that, you know, was, uh, grew up in a place that was incredibly rigid under dictatorships, under uh, class control, maybe you were, you know, subject to the nobility or the aristocracy, and then someone comes along and says that we are going to move the wheels of history in like a very profound way, and we are going to open up opportunities for everybody. This seems, on first, at first glance, to be completely anti-dictatorship and anti-tyranny. But in fact, with totalitarianism, is that it only uses this narrative in order to hide, to, to occult every part of it that is going to uh, reinvigorate those rigid structures and use it for its own benefit, all the while uh, interrogating those structures and never letting them settle down. That's something we'll get into as we go on here, but just a good kind of um, preliminary point. So it's going to be tearing things down and always uh, leaving, up, uh, leaving its opportunities and its movements open to possibility. Now, interestingly, totalitarian leaders like Stalin and Hitler were very, they were also transparent in that they were very quick and open about the ways that they had broken the laws of the state, that they had challenged the state, how they had um, stuck it to the man, so to speak. And this was very seductive to people who thought that the state wasn't representing them. So they looked at those who, these leaders, who claimed to be opposed to the state and had evidence of their own wrongdoing. And the public heard this and said, oh, look, this is actually somebody who's going to stand in for my values to be against the state. And we very much saw this with, like, Trump. And if anyone can recall, when Trump, uh, when Hillary Clinton on the debate stage was like, and Trump has never paid his taxes, his income taxes, his response to that, well, was that, oh, that makes me smart to have been able to manipulate the state, 
to work around the state. And people loved it because they felt alienated from that state apparatus. And so they wanted to identify with the person that was going to embody that uh, hatred that they felt towards the state who was going to change things. Of course, that never happened. Uh, nothing was changed. But the promise was still there and that was enough. Even though Trump was not at all clear in what the project was, it didn't matter for people. So long as there is that promise that things will change, that is enough. And this is why totalitarianism is generally easy to uh, tap into. It doesn't need any kind of rigorous uh, analysis or kind of rigorous planning. It can just come about by uh, following the weight of history and throwing out a few buzzwords about movement and change and possibility that people will cling on to. Now, relating to the actual title of this chapter, that is, A Classless Society, Arendt identifies how totalitarianism is not intent on guiding the people through their various class interests. It's not interested in just representing the lower classes or the upper classes or middle class or whatever. It says, we're going to do away with all that. And all of you, all of you people, you're going to find new alliances that aren't determined on the basis of class. So upper class people can suddenly frolic with lower class people, you know, vice versa, because all that they're interested in is tearing down these rigid structures, these uh, delineations between people, and to instead motivate the formation of a homogenous equal mass. And on the surface, that sounds like a great idea. Like who wouldn't want uh, class barriers to come down? Who wouldn't want everyone to be mingling and engaging with one another? And the problem is not that that plea or that desire is not uh, is bad in itself. It is instead we have to interrogate under what pretense and for what reason is this narrative being used. So it's not as though wanting these things are bad in themselves, but we have to interrogate and question what purpose is it serving now? And it's also, it's just very instrumental to have an entire population that is by your side. And it speaks to the idea that there is power in numbers as opposed to power in persuasive arguments or power in um, effective policy or administration or legislation, anything like that. And the size of populations is an important determining factor uh, to determine whether or not a country can become totalitarian. So after World War I, many countries could have become totalitarian, and totalitarian uh, but only a few actually did, like Stalinist Russia and, and Nazi Germany. The reason that this may have been the case, at least Arendt hazards or she, uh, she guesses, is that these other populations weren't big enough. They didn't have a big enough supply of superfluous labor and superfluous people and wealth and power that could be appropriated for the benefit of the totalitarian regime. And so these other systems, these other nations, only culminated or crystallized into dictatorships or tyrannies. They didn't have the numbers to turn into totalitarianism. And like, without having a big population, it's very difficult to, um, to put, go forward with the imperial the continental imperial desires of totalitarian regimes or like the pan movements. You need a lot of extra people willing to go 
to other places to expand this uh, worldview. Now, another element about big populations that is important to note is that totalitarianism is a regime of terror. And so it's going to inflict harm both on its citizens and on foreigners and people of other nations. And it can only do that if there is a big enough population that they can indiscriminately be killing off uh, entire swaths of that population without it actually affecting the size, the overall mass of that population and the power that that mass bestows upon the totalitarian regime. Now, this seems like a good point for an ad. All right, back again. So the formation of masses instead of classes or having classes or other distinctions coming together to form these masses revealed that uh, or put to death two fundamental European illusions or beliefs. And they are that, uh, that the majority was in favor of party politics and that uh, the supposedly indifferent mass didn't pose a threat to, to traditional party rule. So the formation of these masses put these two myths to, to sleep, essentially, showed the world and showed Europe that actually people were ready to get rid of party politics altogether in favor of just pure chaos. And this was building up for a long time. And you think back to the Dreyfus affair where people were opposing the state in pretty much all forms. They were opposing the republic. They were opposing democracy because both people who sided with Dreyfus and people who didn't side with Dreyfus, who were anti-Semites, saw the state as being an evil institution that was either uh, fighting for uh, or indiscriminately putting people away, which is obviously a bad sign, or it was secretly working with Jewish people uh, to disenfranchise the rest of the rest of the population. So this hatred or this resistance to parliamentary politics, to party politics, was fomenting and it was really percolating for a long time before this. And so when the masses gained their critical mass, when they gained enough power, they were very much prepared to do away with party politics that they viewed to be corrupt, reviewed to be, uh, they viewed it to be uh, perhaps even too rigid. They wanted to open up movement. They wanted to open up possibility for parliament. But there is an irony here because distinctions have begun to fade and now there is the formation of a single homogenous class or single homogenous mass, I should say. And what that, what that kind of opens up is uh, a lack of desire for different kinds of representation. You don't want a bunch of different parties representing people, at least totalitarianism doesn't want this, because it's going to then divide up this mass. They want representation, but they want the representation to come from one place and to stand in for this mass of people which is why it is so pernicious and why it is so, uh, it's, it's quite clever as a political system because any, anything and everything that uh, might present itself as an alternative to that system, to totalitarianism, is taken as a sign of the needs of totalitarianism. Because anything that might oppose it would need to adopt the antithetical stance of trying to reimpose party politics that totalitarian and totalitarian regimes have said is going to harm the people and the people really believe it. So it's very difficult to oppose and it's very difficult to 
um, to undo. And it's also important to note that the masses here are different than the mob, as the mob had historically manifested beforehand. The mob had like an allegiance in a lot of cases to the bourgeois order, to uh, political parties. In fact, they might be fighting for their own political candidates that could go against other party members. And there was kind of still a dialectical play here, or still uh, the possibility for dialogue and engagement with other thinkers and other ideas. Whereas now with the mass, there isn't that allotment of space to oppositionary views and ideas. Now, how did the masses actually form? How did Europe or in like Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia go from uh, a class-based society to a mass society? And there are so many different possible explanations for this. But the one that Arendt really hones her gaze on is that the people began to be atomized. They began to be separated. And there was a culture of fear and paranoia that was kind of bubbling up. And so people began to turn into themselves more than any other time. And what this allowed for was a destabilization of a very ground of commonality that would set the stage for community or for political engagement or anything like that. And now what we had were people that were just left on their own. And when you have people left on their own without any kind of connection to anybody else, obviously this is a hotbed for radicalism and it's going to uh, make them particularly susceptible to narratives that are going to claim to get them out of that situation, no matter how problematic or messed up they are. And this is really what bound or the commonality between uh, Russian totalitarianism and uh, Nazi Germany totalitarianism, because even though they were both incredibly different, what they both relied upon was this atomization of their public, of, of encouraging uh, a degree of loneliness among their people that set them up, that, that really primed them for this kind of mass control. And this was really more important than just there being a lack of structure in society, because you can atomize individuals you can separate people from one another, but there could still be a structure in society. It just involves making these people feel alienated from that structure, which is, of course, you know, what we see uh, all the time with politicians today is, you know, they're calling attention to and trying to uh, kind of stoke fear and doubt among the people of the various institutions that bring them together, that create senses of community and, and organization and everything like that. So in Soviet Russia, of course, they liquidated the peasants, the workers, and then the, the bureaucrats uh, in order to homogenize all the remaining people into this mass. But they also had a desire to destroy family ties, to destroy community, and to uh, foster a culture of paranoia and, and fear where you can't even trust your spouse anymore. You can't even trust your children. You can't trust your parents because they might be working for the enemy who is an enemy to the state that you uh, feel so attached to, even though it's a, it's, or a nation you feel attached to, even though the state you feel um, alienated from. But a system that is predicated upon just atomization or of tearing down structures or trying to uh, bring people 
apart instead of bringing them together doesn't actually like like i've already said set out a final goal it doesn't say this is the end result that we're hoping for because to say that would be to reinsert a possible sense of community into a structure that can't allow it and that refuses it so they always remain vague in their goals and in their projects now it's hard not to also point to the ways that world war one contributed to this culture where people were scared of one another people were hurting and there were entire populations of world war one veterans coming home all across europe and these people in a lot of cases were suffering from a lot of trauma they were suffering you know from ptsd they were uh, probably had a lot of, uh, of of things going on and they contributed to this general culture of fear almost it seems like a natural response because surely there weren't therapists you know working with these people they were just sent back and expected to re-engage with the world but arendt identifies that these people had a different view on what humanity was really capable of and it makes sense like if you go through that an experience like that live in the trenches for her for however long i don't see how someone could come out of that with a very positive view of humanity and um you know human culture like it would be the most alienating thing i i could imagine and so they participated and contributed to this culture of fear and paranoia and this is a point that she doesn't spend a whole lot of time on but i really think that there's a lot here in that it it really points to a real historical event that would have contributed to this uh, culture of fear. And of course, if you're always living in fear, it's going to, or if someone comes along, like a totalitarian leader, and says, it is the Jewish people that are uh, threatening us, and that's why you feel scared. Of course, they're gonna, the people are going to cling on to that. And kind of about this, Arendt writes that, they elevated cruelty, that is, the, these veterans after World War I, to a new major, or to a major virtue because it contradicted society's humanitarian and liberal hypocrisy. And I still think there's very much a problem with this today, not to amuse too much or provide too much of my own opinion or thoughts about this, but um, I remember one time I was renting a car a few years ago, and or I rented a car and I took it to the place and then they offered to drive me home. And they got this guy from the back who was like washing the cars, got him from the back and he, he, he got in the front seat and he, he was driving me home. And he's like, you know, I was a sniper in, uh, I think he said in Iraq. And he's like, yeah, I, I was I held the record in, in Canada for the longest, uh, for the furthest sniper shot kill um, for a while. And he's, he was like describing it and like how far it was. And I'm like, did this guy is is this guy telling me about how he killed someone uh and i'm like you know if he had some kind of pride about that like okay maybe that's i i still think that's messed up but like the fact that this guy was like of course this stranger would love to hear about how i killed someone uh a brown person this this canadian guy of course this this nice uh, uh young canadian guy is gonna love to hear this story which is it was haunting it was it was one of the like most uncomfortable experiences of my life but i think that there is still this culture here certainly around um 
uh, military personnel and around veterans about viewing the world in such a negative light that you feel like you can just discuss your open acts of cruelty or your acts of cruelty openly with others as though people just generally are, you know, going to be on board with that, those acts. And as though I was going to say, oh yeah, that was good shooting, like the absurdity of that. But the fact that he felt empowered to say that signals to me that there is a little bit of a culture or, or a big culture of that, you know, I'm just speaking about Canada right now, of this idea that humanity is just evil uh, and we just need to get over it and learn to embrace this evil, which might also be this, uh, the you know, the way that people would rationalize uh, fewer gun control laws, even though I, I know nothing about that. But, you know, contributing to a culture of fear and paranoia, encouraging people to buy death weapons in case uh, somebody, I don't know, walks on their lawn and they feel like, this is justification for them uh, to kill somebody, to uh, inflict capital punishment on somebody of their own accord, choosing who can live and who can die because that's just the world they live in. Now, when a mass has formed and, you know, all these other structures have begun to dissipate and to disappear or to lose their legitimacy, the kinds of power and the kinds of uh, exertions of force that the mass and its governing political bodies can use are going to start to deviate from the norm. And so it's going to rely more heavily upon terroristic means of, of realizing its project. So it'll cease to do things by the book. It's going to leave bombs and mailboxes and it's going to um, you know, assassinate uh, rivals in, in politics. It's going to do everything shady that it can. And it serves two purposes, at, at least two clear purposes. The first one is just to actually get rid of problem people uh, in what might be the quickest and most effective way to do it. But also, when you have an atomized public that cannot trust uh, journalism, they cannot trust academics, they cannot trust uh, their parents or their, their friends or family or, or anything, if there are acts of terrorism that happen sporadically, that happen uh, you know, without any kind of clear plan that it seems to be arbitrary, that is going to contribute to this culture of paranoia and fear, which is only going to work to bolster up the political power and appeal of those people who claim to be in uh, favor of this regime or who claim to be the ones that will solve the problems of terrorism, even though they are the ones contributing to it because it's impossible in these settings for anybody to get the big picture to be able to assess all of the elements from all different sides they only understand their experience as an individual and how that individuality i.e their life is under threat so they're going to cling to anything that's going to remedy that fear to allay that fear because they don't they have no other source of information that might explain to them what's going on or how uh, these acts of terror are actually being used to uh, motivate their fear and to bolster up certain political candidates. And that's probably a good point. I'll end this one here right before chapter 11, titled The Totalitarian Movement, in which we're going to talk more about propaganda and the kinds of strategies used by totalitarian regimes and how it fosters a sense of loneliness. So yeah, 
if you listen this far, I applaud you. Uh, if there's anything I got wrong or anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If you listen to this in podcast form, you can uh, leave five stars if you like. I hope I wasn't too rambly with my own uh, experiences and stuff. I try to refrain from that. But in any case, uh, yeah, catch you next time. Take care.